Let us just pray. Lord, we pray for your blessing on your holy word. And we pray, Lord, that it may not return unto you void as you have promised. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning this morning. Um, what a, a well-known passage and yet a passage that brings a lot of, of meaning, a lot of different levels of meaning. And I hope that we can unpack it a little bit this morning. Uh, this idea of, of Jesus coming into Jerusalem, where he's riding into Jerusalem, but he's also riding into history. This Mark chapter 11, verse 1 to 11. In the film Darkest Hour, I don't know if anyone has seen it, but Gary Oldman plays the great wartime leader Winston Churchill and his first day is coming into Parliament in May 1940 when Britain was at a terrible point of danger. Churchill himself was unpopular. People didn't trust him. His own party didn't fully support him. And yet into all this came a man he believed with a certain destiny. He was 66 years old. Many people thought that because of his failures, he would not be able to bring anything to a country in a time of need. Now, there's no direct connection to uh, AD 33 and Jesus coming into Jerusalem, but hopefully the, the significance of this will become clear as we look further at the, pack- at the, at the passage. Verse 1, as they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, And just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it and will send it back shortly. Our first point this morning is this colt, this young donkey. This colt would be waiting for Jesus. Was it a previously arranged thing that Jesus had done? Were these followers of Jesus that were keeping the donkey for this occasion? Or was there something more? We're not quite sure. The passage isn't quite clear in this. Mark in his gospel suggests that it was quite prophetic, that uh, there was maybe no pre-arrangement of this, but it was more sort of ordained. I think it's also important to see the Lord has need of it. How often do we see that in scripture and we maybe hear it in our own lives where the Lord needs something and he asks us to willingly give and, and who better to give to? Because he is the the God of of creation. He is the provider. He is the maker of heaven and earth. It talks in scripture about Christ's followers occasionally having to put mother and father and family uh, after Christ and putting him first. And who better than Jesus who has sacrificed all for us. So even on this level we see that this, this generosity of people providing this donkey. Second Corinthians says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. And whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. The second thing this morning I want to look at in this passage is the idea of profit. They went and found a colt outside the street, tied it at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, what are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. 
You see, Jesus was coming from Jericho, 18 miles away. He was joining a band of pilgrims who were going into Jerusalem for Passover. They were naturally celebrating for this, this Jewish festival. Uh, the pilgrims hailed Jesus as a modern-day prophet. Here is this popular preacher. Was he a prophet? Maybe he could even be the Messiah, uh, this promised deliverer of, of Israel who would deliver them from the Romans and set up a kingdom like that of David. But our third point this morning is, surely he was more than a prophet. Verse 8, many people spread their cloaks on the road while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. You see, when Jesus rode in on a donkey, he was making a political statement. If he was a pilgrim, he would have gone in on foot. If he was a conquering army, he would have gone in on horseback. But he goes in on what seems to be a humble form, this donkey. But the people of Jerusalem would have also known the scriptures. And Zechariah in chapter 9 says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. People would also have remembered other scriptures. Psalm 118, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord we bless you. The Lord is God. He has made his light shine on us with boughs in our hand. Join in the festal procession up to the horns of the altar. You are my God and I will praise you. You are my God and I will exalt you. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever. You see, this was another pilgrim pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And yes, there might have been other leaders where they would have brought these palm branches for in celebration but these fulfillments of scripture meant that Jesus was claiming something a lot more than just a prophet and the Pharisees pick up on this and they tell him in Luke's gospel which adds some extra detail teacher rebuke your disciples but Jesus replies in an interesting way if they keep quiet the stones will cry out I wonder was he joking I wonder was he serious because here was the Messiah. Here was uh, the, the rightful king. Here was the creator. And possibly if the people hadn't cried out, then the stones would actually have sung. And what a sight that would have been. I often think too, whenever Jesus is born in Bethlehem and the angels go down and they sing, and they sing, hark the herald angels sing, glory in the highest. I wonder, did they have to be told? I'd say they wanted to go down. Because who could not want to be a witness to this wonderful plan of salvation that God had for mankind where the creator of the universe actually appeared in creation it's so hard to get our heads around but this was not just an ordinary prophet the thing that I'd like to ask going a little bit deeper is does God walk into history today James Baker one of Reagan's key men at the time of the fall of the Berlin Wall certainly thought so he recounts in a foreword to a book on Winston Churchill uh, that the reaction of the Soviet leader Gorbachev 
was nothing less than miraculous. If you look in history, can you ever imagine a Soviet leader who allows the Berlin Wall to fall, who allows the chance of Germany reuniting with the West and not to send in the tanks? But Gorbachev in the White House in May 1990 said, any country should have the right to choose any alliance it wants to join. That was something miraculous. That was something unexpected. I had the honor of being in one of the first tier fund summer teams over to Russia in 1992. And we met a lot of the Christians there. And the Christians had been persecuted over many years and they had been praying for the fall of communism for 70 years. Was this a coincidence? James Baker himself writes, through a personal crisis, my wife Susan helped me to pray through it and understand that I really needed to stop trying to play God. Instead, I needed to turn the matter over to him. And in describing the prayer breakfast that he and some other of the most powerful men in the world had in Washington, he goes on, we all came to realize that inner security and true fulfillment come by faith not by wielding power in a town where power is king. Such fulfillment and inner security come only by developing a personal relationship with God, a relationship that for me is made possible by Jesus Christ. Lechville Elsa, do you remember him from Solidarity in Poland? Many years ago he set up the trade union and he eventually through uh, the fall of the Soviet Union became leader in Poland. He once said, sooner or later, we will have to go back to our fundamental values, back to God, the truth, the truth which is in God. Is this another coincidence? Martin Luther was caught out in a terrible lightning and thunderstorm and he prayed to God for deliverance and he did pray that he would do whatever God wanted him to do and how God mightily used him to reform his church. We mentioned Churchill earlier. Churchill's an interesting character. He didn't profess a very strong Christian belief. I'm not sure how often he went to church. But he did believe in a certain divine destiny. And there is evidence that he was heavily influenced by his nanny, who was a devout Christian. He saw military service in India and Sudan. He wasn't smart enough to go into law. He wasn't smart enough to go into the infantry. So he became a cavalry officer. He was largely neglected by his parents, who were off doing other things but he was influenced by his Christian nanny, Elizabeth Everest. He has a strange prediction at the age of 16 where he says, this country will be subjected somehow to a tremendous invasion by what means I do not know, but I tell you that I shall be in command of the defense of London and I shall save London and England from disaster. What a strange thing for a 16 year old to say. Was he just being arrogant? Or again, are we getting glimpses into something more divine? Churchill cried out to God one night while hiding in a ditch in South Africa because he'd gone on, he was a war correspondent in the Boer War and he had been captured and managed to escape. He was running from, from the Boers and they would have probably killed him if they'd caught him. And in a ditch one night, he prays out to God for help. And later he writes about this. He says, I found no comfort in any of the philosophical ideas which some men parade in their hours of ease and strength and safety. They seemed only fair by their friends. I realized with awful force that no exercise of my own feeble wit and strength could save me from my enemies. And that without the assistance of that high power 
which interferes in the eternal sequence of causes and effects more often than we're always prone to admit. I could never succeed. I prayed long and earnestly for help and guidance. My prayer, as it seems to me, was swiftly and wonderfully answered. That was in 1899. The next house he went to for help was an English family who were forced to stay and operate the coal mines during the war. It wasn't a South African family which would have turned him over. And he eventually escaped. We also think of Dunkirk and the Battle of Britain. Strange things that we don't fully understand, but can they all be coincidences? See, what I want to go on to is saying is that God is the author and sovereign of history. Verse 11, Jesus entered Jerusalem. He went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything. But since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. What an insignificant verse. But we see that the scene of entries of jubilation is portrayed by Mark as the appearance of the Messiah. But it's also Jesus coming into the temple. And that's quite profound. Because in Malachi chapter 3, it says, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. You see, on that first Palm Sunday, Jesus, the Messiah, the King, was coming into the temple. Now, what they didn't understand was that he was coming twice, and we must await his second coming and be ready for that. But this is a gateway in history. Do not for a moment think that God's sovereignty on earth is limited. His continuing plan of salvation Yes, we may question our 9-11s, the war in Syria. We may question the suffering in the world, the genocide in Rwanda, the persecution of many Christians throughout the world. But remember that Jesus did not change slavery immediately, but he did change hearts. And eventually, slavery became outlawed. And that seems to be the way that Jesus works. He works one heart at a time. And his people can be found in the most dangerous places on earth. Again, easing the suffering and changing this one heart at a time. What of your heart this morning? Please don't forget that the Palm Sunday crowd who shouted Hosanna, some of them may also have shouted crucify him within a week. Judas was in this crowd. Whatever happened, he got disillusioned. He did not see that Jesus was delivering what he wanted and, and giving what he thought unexpected. Because instead, Jesus unsettled the money changers. He unsettled the complacent. He preached forgiveness and submission to God, not armed revolution. This morning, don't let your hearts be hardened or turn away. For Jesus wants us to submit to him and to change our heart and to change each other's hearts one at a time. How may we survive if we miss so great a salvation? How can our own hearts hear the words of a saviour and walk away? For the wages of sin is death. The gift of God, though, is salvation through Christ Jesus our Lord. And he says, come unto me, all you who are weak and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Church attendance or money or good living will not get us into heaven. Jesus isn't a prophet whose teachings are to be followed. He's our saviour. Only he can forgive our sins and open the door into a right relationship and fellowship with the Father. He's our creator God who knows us intimately from whom we can never hide. 
He's our Lord, worthy to direct our lives. I used to get a little confused with the Trinity, but a good explanation was put to me a few years ago. It's the Trinity of love. The Father had so much love, he couldn't keep it to himself. So he poured it out onto the Son. And the Son couldn't contain it. He poured it out onto his bride, the church, through the Holy Spirit. Likewise, we don't keep it to ourselves. We overflow with this love and forgiveness that Jesus brings. And we try to change each heart that we come in contact with one heart at a time. Yes, Jesus is sovereign and he is saving the world. But guess what? He chooses to do it one heart at a time. What about your heart this morning? As the song lyric goes, there's no sin we could have imagined that is stronger than his love. And it's all ours if we'll come home again to him. And what about every heart you come in contact with this week? Pray for it, witness to it, love it, beseech God that he brings it into his family and into his kingdom. Because that is the the message of Jesus walking into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. He was declaring his kingdom. He was declaring himself as Messiah and King and ultimately as sovereign over each of our lives.